on the Edge Podcast. This is Eddie, no, not the Edge Podcast. Okay. With Ty and Mike. <laughs> Thank you. From Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello, and welcome to the City on the Edge Podcast. We are the City on the Edge podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Ty. Welcome and back. Hello. So we had a great time last week talking with you about the horrific murder of one man and the lifelong <laughs> imprisonment of another. We just, we just had a real good time talking about all that a lot, stuff. A lot of laughs, I think. We, I think we, we grew. We Yeah, we frequently... <laughs> no, you know what? It was not funny. It was a very serious, kind of sad topic a little bit. With but some it's, good jokes. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but it... <laughs> No, I, I, don't, I don't see it as that sort of entertainment material at all. I really, but I do find it very interesting because there's something about a scene of that sort of heightened anxiety that really like uh, draws people's behaviors into sharp attention when looking at the past. And it's, it's really interesting to look at the past that way with that kind of clarity, like, I think. Well, because there's a murder, you mean? It's like you can kind of. Everyone like, is feeling so moment. intense. Yeah. Think about the times. Have you, you, I know you've tried to write before, and so have I, <laughs> about times when things really aren't much happening. Like writing right. about like this sleepy town where very little happened and so on and so on. Everybody's and nice to each other. And there's a, no, not necessarily, <laughs> no, but there's a real either. like, there's a real like kind of feeling of like unknowability like we can't yeah, possibly know this then right. you get like, a story like this that's widely reported on and has a lot of details kind around of brings it brings things into yeah. relief in a way yeah and it's so intense and everyone's scrutinizing it yeah. you join in that scrutiny as a reader yeah. or a, a listener or a studier you know and um, I think that's cool um, I was before we go too much further I wanted to ask you you have a story about uh, going to Walmart today that I think needs to be repeated. Uh, Talk about a moment that brings thanks, things Ty. into sharp relief. Thanks, Ty. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I've never been murdered in a small cabin in the Sandias, but yeah. today I did try to buy a gas cap at Walmart. And, <laughs> and just like a horrific murder, I think it can really tell you a lot about your life and your community. So, so I went, I, I, the gas cap I kept buying was wrong. It didn't fit my car, even though I was looking at a picture on my phone that said, this is the gas cap needed for a 2002 Ford Escape. <laughs> and so I'd buy it, and then I'd go out, and then, no, it wouldn't fit. So I'd adjust and try a little different, and I'd have to keep going in and out. And then I went to refund it, and I got stuck behind a homeless woman who, like, I'm sure she's a wonderful person, but she had a lot of T-shirts to return <laughs> in her cart, and it took a long, long time. And by the time I finally got back out to uh, and went to an auto zone and got another cap and put it on, the freaking fuel lights thing still wouldn't turn off. I don't know. Any auto mechanics out like there, a, give me a call. Going to Walmart is yeah. such a bizarre experience in itself. Like oh, it's, it's just horrible. It's going it's like, to happen. Something like that is going to like happen. It's like walking into like a dystopian movie set every time. Yeah, it's totally, you know, you just like... Why all these fluorescent lights? Why do people all have walkie-talkies that are so loud? Yeah, like, why, why, right, why don't they right. have like some kind of quiet thing like texting each other? Why is that person but, wearing stretch pants like three sizes too small? Oh man, seriously, yeah, you know, like it's it's a it's a strange place to go, and it never it's never it's never great. But so yeah, so I'm I'm a scarred person. I'm a, I'm wounded. I, I you know I'm not quite the person I was at the, during the time of the last episode. Okay, it's good to know. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of the last episode, we've been uh, I think we've had a pretty good good response we got some emails about it yeah uh including one from uh, oh, a woman named deborah chapel yeah uh contacted us via facebook listen to this listeners she says world. um my great-grandmother was a friend of carl taylor's i think she said out, out in gallup or something like that or oh. am i making that up do you think her grandmother is that one that was mentioned in that in, no it was a different name the piece sure. different name it was oh. her grandmother was miss ruth finley no her great-grandmother was cora something i think, I think oh, yeah, carl cool. taylor right. had a you're right 
I think he was a bit of a rascal. You know, I, I kind of uh, think you might be right. He had a few, uh, yeah. few girlfriends around. Yeah. So she writes, uh, my great-grandmother was a friend of Carl Taylor's. Have some documents from him, uh, from her and him, regarding his murder. So she wrote this on, uh, this, is, this is from Carl Taylor, um, from Cedar Crest, New Mexico, January 28th, 1936, so wow. uh, about a month, I guess. Wait, wait, what, what's it? January 20 what? Uh, January 28th. 28th, so that's seven Actually, days that's, before yeah, his death. Actually, that's, yeah, you're right. Seven days thinking, before his death. I was thinking that was a month. February 5th, he was shot. 1936, so just a few days. Yeah. And he writes... Uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, please go back and listen to okay. the previous episode. This is the second of two parts. Yeah, we'll, we'll catch you up in a moment here, too. Um, he writes, Dear Cora, that was her great-grandmother, am writing this in one hell of a hurry, can't possibly make a letter of it. Point is, I have a request for a short article for an important magazine on the New Mexico Penitentes, and it is wanted in a big hurry or not at all. Would you have the kindness to write me a letter, airmail, explaining in detail just what you saw, what the Murata was like, how the people were dressed, how their ceremonies were carried on, just how the scourging was done, what vocal sounds you heard, what kind of whips were used, anything that is dramatic, but don't strain for an effect, leave that to me. Just tell me the simplest words and in utmost detail what you saw. And then, uh, and then Deborah writes, this is just a fragment, fragment, unfortunately. I went on to write a poem as a response using Cora's research notes wow. and writings. I will dig through my boxes to find the originals, oh. but that will take a long time. So the past that was kind of anywhere. interesting. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. amazing. Sitting in the back amazing. rooms of people's houses, you know, they've got cardboard boxes filled with old letters. So, and we heard this because we posted this on the Remember, uh, Remember When in Albuquerque. Right, uh, right. You, you posted on that. that was, what's that feed called again? Uh, Remember, remember in Albuquerque when? Oh, remember it's in just, Albuquerque you know, when? Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Old pictures. Oh, yeah. And people talking about what it was like in the 70s and 60s yeah. a lot of times. It's fun, man. You can put a question on there, and you may or may not get responses that are what you're looking for. Right. But, but um, that, you know, sometimes it's so interesting. Sometimes people just go off because people, everyone that lives here is an authority on living here. Right. You know, <laughs> like, it's something they know about. Well, you stay at one place long enough, you kind of collect... Yeah. Collect the detritus of the past. It's true, man. Oh, I think the past is just everywhere. It's 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 the only reason, honestly, that I ever think about leaving the city. Like sometimes I just feel so overwhelmed oh, by right. not only my own personal history here, but just the own history history here. Yeah, right, right. It's just it's so dense, you know. I mean, it, it, I think of, I do. I think of Coronado, you know, c- you know, killing two hundred people in in the winter, you know, what because they didn't give him blankets for yeah, for his men. Yeah. You know, I, I think of that kind of thing driving around. It was, it was because they wouldn't let him into their Pueblo. He yeah. would, they wouldn't just give him the Pueblo. Yeah. Which is what he I think of Sam Hoffman that should kill, be a, a killing his wife episode. and then himself, the developer that did so much to the Northeast oh, Heights. I don't know that one. Oh, you know, That's anytime it. you see Hoffman Town, you know, he had a bad land deal on the west side. Oh, really? And he, uh, he murdered his wife and then himself. Ooh. And... You know, Hoffman Town. I, right? I don't want to judge the guy. I don't know what they were going through, but don't murder people. I feel like know? judging him right now. Yeah, I don't like judging and murdering. But I, I don't know what it, even if his wife was in. I don't know any of the details. But um, well, speaking of uh, yeah. judgment, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, so right at the heart of this story, yes. with a lot of uh, judgment around it, yeah. is the uh, the penitentes. Penitentes. I'd like to kind of maybe if we could start out just by talking a little bit about them. So um, yeah. Why don't you introduce the idea? What the okay. So if you listen to the first episode, you may have heard a little bit about the penitentes. They are 
uh, a sect. It's a kind of a Catholic subsect, I believe I've heard them called. Yeah. And they, for a long time, they were unofficial. Now they're official, but they're not quite what they used to be. Right. There's something different. They're an official, like, fraternal organization. So yeah. Not nearly as interesting as they I were. think they do still whip themselves and things. Marta Weigel said, oh, yeah, of course I've seen penitentes whip themselves. And oh, yeah. she was writing about them not that yeah. many decades ago. I mean, yeah, 1975. You know, yeah. And, like I said, when I was writing that piece in the last episode that we read, um, uh, when I was writing that, I, I um, oh, I'm spacing out. Oh, I got a couple of phone calls that were like kind of veiled threats. I felt like these are people that still have like an active presence in some way. Right, right, you know? right. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, Feel especially now like, that they're legitimized. You yeah. know, they were legitimized in 1943, I believe. Interesting. Uh, so not not that long after the period we're talking about, but it was not an easy process. Like the Catholic Church had been aware of them since right. uh, the 1830s. There's, they yeah. had been. Um, Crazy. They had been uh, condemned by the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. And they had kind of sprung up in the absence of the official church. Sure, yeah. So they had sprung up because the Catholic Church had mostly pulled out of northern New Mexico right, right. at the beginning of the 19th century. And there was a need suddenly for, you know, things like uh, last sacraments to be given, babies to be baptized, other other uh, services that the church right. would have usually preserved. And people thought those things were very important. Yeah, and they wanted, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this, uh, this lay organization sprang up. And as part of it, they, uh, in addition to doing these things, actually, I have a list of the kind of things that they were known for doing. Interesting. Um, the positive things that they did. They were uh, known for helping to prepare the dead, to yeah. give comfort to a, oh, a nice. widow or, or family of the bereaved, and wow. to help financially. That's very nice. Um, in times of uh, emergencies, Good they would... Good for you, uh, penitentes. Good for you. <laughs> They would, uh, in times of emergencies, they were oh, able yeah. to do, uh, they would perform baptisms, which I suppose... I don't know much about Catholicism, They're but I, I some lines probably, but like, probably, but, yeah. but still like it's, that's also common. I remember in, I was in Guatemala for a while uh -huh. and, um, I remember seeing the way that the Mayan religions had, had merged with the Catholic religions were so fascinating. They had a saint there who was the patron saint of tobacco and alcohol, oh, who, okay. Mashimon, with Mashimon? an X. Yeah. yeah. And, um, Mashimon, uh, who had allegedly fought Jesus and maybe even one, maybe even killed oh, Jesus no. in some of the stories. Oh, Very geez. strange stuff. And, you know, I remember once going to a, a small town, I forget the name of it, uh, somewhere near Antigua, and seeing chickens sacrificed outside a Catholic church. Yeah, you know, okay. I mean, these... these uh, so there's always been like that element yeah, of folk the beliefs always come through, sort of you know? blending with, yeah. the, with the folk traditions. Yeah. Um, so what was I saying? That they... Uh, Oh, and that they come, they maintained a fund basically for helping in emergency situations. That's like great, man. Yeah, that's a very very good thing. Now, yeah. in addition to that, mm -hmm. they were also a secret yeah. brotherhood, and yeah. they became more secret uh, during the territorial yeah. period when Americans started coming in, and uh, Bishop Lamy was really interested in in Americanizing the uh, the New Mexico Catholic Church, right? So they at that point the. Um, the penitentes became a much more secretive order. Yeah. And they actually were kicked out of the various official Catholic chapels, and that's when they started building these moradas and interesting. so Interesting. Yeah. Ah, oh, man, I love this stuff. It's so interesting. So, um, I, you know, would you have been a penitente back in the day if you lived in a village and that stuff was going on? Um, that's a weird question. That but, is a weird question because yeah. it's like there's a lot of X factors yeah. there. Yeah, okay. It's like, well... Uh, Say you were like Modesto Trio's brother or sister or something like that. Yeah, okay, sure. I'd have been a penitent. You think so? Um, yeah. I probably would have too, but I would have, like, kept my shirt on. I would have whipped myself very gently. <laughs> <laughs> All right, speaking of whipping, let's talk about... Um, I have a little... 
uh, description of what kind of uh, what kind of whippings they were doing. Oh man! In here, you guys um, read this book, Marta uh, Weigel's Brothers, Brothers of Blood. Light, Brothers of Blood. Brother, yeah. Okay, so this is a uh, this is a description of a penitente initiation. Oh, it, it's um, interesting. Stay tuned. So the person who uh, the young man, because mm-hmm. it was an exclusively male organization, who was selected sexist, sexist <laughs> penitentes. Yeah, yeah, you know they were. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, what do you do? I think she says at one point that they like uh, they were part of their thing was to bolster male power in the village but though in the 1937 movie The Last of the Penitentes is loosely based on this story yeah. Carl Taylor's girlfriend does get crucified and whipped in his stead oh okay <laughs> so not in the version I saw no it's only in the trailer that part got cut out by censors later okay, look up so that trailer so the, uh, the young initiate comes okay. from the Murata which okay. is like this um, unofficial chapel yeah usually located kind of in a more remote area adobe maybe stacked rock yeah exactly yeah. comes and he knocks on the door and they say uh from inside, they say, "Quién esta casa de luz?" Right? Uh, who's, uh, who's in the house of the light? What's that mean? Oh wait, no, I get that. That's that's the person who's knocking. Says okay. that. Who's in the house of the light? The answer is Jesus. Hmm. And then he says, "Like, well, who's with him? Maria." And then they say, and then he says, "And, and who's uh, who's in there as well?" And it's it's Jose, right? Oh. It's Joseph. Huh. Um, oh yeah. So he comes. So at that point, fascinating. He's allowed to enter, and then they. He removes his clothing, puts on um, some white trousers, which are called uh, calzones, which mm-hmm. I didn't know. <laughs> oh, wow. Racy. Sounds delicious. Takes his clothes <laughs> off and puts on calzones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, takes those off. <laughs> the, right. uh, the seal of initiation is, is carved into his back. Oh, my God. With no. obsidian, Ow. Uh, with this obsidian like this stone oh. blade. No, that's horrible. Oh, God. And then the whipping begins. Oh, is he whipping himself? No. He is being whipped by other members of the Murata. Oh, that's not... All right. Should so we... he comes into the Murata. Okay. And he uh, he has to ask for lashings. Whoa. In order to... Um, in order to understand the suffering of Jesus. Okay. So he asks the other brothers for three lashings for the, uh, the meditations of the Passion. Oh, that's right. Um, five for the wounds of Jesus Damn. as he hung upon the cross, which is hands, one for each limb, the hands and the feet, and then the uh, and then the spear. Oh yeah, spear. And then seven for the last words. Father, forgive them, right. for they know not what they do. That's probably not, there's another one. that's like a Latin phrase or something. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then forty for the days he suffered in the wilderness. Wow. And this supposedly, uh, because um, the whip has been rubbed down with like an herbal right. tea of sorts, right. and then the and as well as some alcohol, and then the back is massaged. It's an artisanal whip. Artisanal whip <laughs> available now at Trader Joe's. And then the seal, which had been carved <laughs> in with the obsidian, uh, allows the blood to flow freely. So supposedly, this is supposed. This keeps the infections from being a possibility. That's a. That's a small silver lining there. <laughs> you know, if you whip yourself really, really bad, infections are at a minimum. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Infections are... 
Oh man, what how what interesting stuff though. God. Yeah, absolutely. And you that's can good see history. that. Okay, so on the one hand, we got this organization that's like doing good in their community, and yeah. on the other hand, they're a secret. Right. I mean, I don't want to use the word cult to describe them. They're kind of a cult. They're a whip cult. I, I kind of feel like every religion's whip, a, a whip cult. A smart whip cult. You know, so they're as culty as pretty much any other religion. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, they're they're performing these rites that are pretty in the dark, in, in the, the cemeteries, dark, yeah, exactly, in the mountains. Walking from cross to cross through the darkness, and oh, they have they uh, they have a skull sitting on their altar oh, as a it, memento yeah. mori. They beat up know? people that spy on them. Yeah. I mean, like these are there's something mystic and mysterious. You know, definitely mysterious. Yeah. You if you take out all of the supernatural claims and all of that stuff, still what a fascinating group. I mean, what a, like you know what a what a what an evocative thing to have in the desert. I mean, like, right. I don't know about you, but when I look at the desert late at night, lit only by a campfire or a flashlight or the setting sun or the moon, I think this is a world where anything is possible. The penitentes right. are some people that kind of like, you know, they, they met that weirdness. They met yeah. that strangeness that the desert has, you know, and, and did it in, in great form. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're going to get into the... Uh... The actual uh, back to the story here. So oh, yeah. why don't we? Um, this is something we recorded earlier. Yeah. So what what uh, what has happened to this point? So um, Carl right. Taylor, so journalist we've got a, we've from got, Indiana. First of all, we've got a very stubborn listener that won't just listen to the first episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah, mean, just you know, we're, we're reminding them. What, what we're are reminding you? Them. What's this revolution you're fighting? It's <laughs> it's not working. Let's go listen to it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so. Uh, okay, but you know, all just right. Just as a reminder okay, for let's, our okay, here's a reminder. Beautiful Maybe listener. it's been a couple weeks since yeah. somebody listened to the last one. Um, so Carl Taylor has been murdered, February fifth, nineteen thirty-six. This writer, journalist who had traveled to the Philippines, who had lived in the mountains of New Mexico, who had written extensively about the flagellant sex of the world. Can the, we just say? Yeah. Mike is not saying flatulence. He's saying flagellants. Flagellants. Yeah. The flatulent. It's a tough one, but yeah, this <laughs> the flatulent sex of the. <laughs> the penitentiaries had bad gas. I don't know if, <laughs> how that got left out of the myth, but yeah. <laughs> okay. I just I noticed that in the last episode. I was like, yeah, sometimes it sounds no. like flatulence. F L A G E L L A N T E. I believe yeah, the, okay. the flagellantes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the flat, the, the uh, he, Carl Taylor was very interested in these groups, and he lived in the Philippines, and he taught at the University of Manila, and he um, wrote about the penitentes there. He came to New Mexico and wrote about the penitentes here. He um, was was very interested in these rituals. In fact, he wrote a book about it called Odyssey of the Islands, right. in which those rituals take up a pretty significant chapter in that book yeah. and are it's alluded kind of to on, on other occasions. Yeah. Um, so, Carl Taylor, February 5th, 1936, he's living in the Sandia Mountains, San Antonio, New Mexico. Now you may know it as the place where Burger Boy is when you drive up to the crest if you live in Probably Albuquerque. Generally referred to as Cedar Crest. Yeah, kind of it gets lumped in there, but in. guys, San Antonio is something else. Um, yeah, it's, you know, or it should be, but, you know, there's overlap, but it's, it's right. complicated. Um, there are areas that I don't think have names, and they, they get lumped in with other places. Like, there's an area that's considered part of Cedar Crest as you drive down Hanson's Hill, down into, um, into uh, San Antonito, and there's just no, there's, no, there's no name for that area, but everyone calls it Cedar Crest, which is wrong because it's literally on the other side of Sandia Park. That would be uh, like a second Cedar Crest. Okay. So yeah. it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. So anyway... Um, so he's yeah. he's living in these uh, so he's, living, he's living in these mountains. Boy, I went off there. Cut all studying that. up on the uh, <laughs> yeah. He's studying up on the penitentiaries. He's been commissioned to write this story. He's about writing. The yeah, yeah. He wrote that letter to his friends. He's obviously tracking down every scrap of information right. he could find from anyone that had seen anything. And uh, his 
this 15-year-old boy that he's employed from next door, almost 16, Modesto Trujillo, probably killed him. You know, probably uh, came in and shot him. Do we think? Well, let's let's yeah, let's yeah. Uh, save because uh, okay. in the next part of the story we talk a bit more oh, okay. about the evidence there. Oh, okay. So, all right. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So somebody shot Carl Taylor. Modesto Trujillo may have been in the room. He ran out. He said that two masked men had shot Carl Taylor, right. so that's an alternate theory there. And immediately, like, all of Carl Taylor's friends are like, no. oh, wait, he was studying up on the penitentes. Yeah, it must be the penitentes. Oh, my God, it's the penitentes killed him. Yeah, and his right. friends included people like Conrad Richter, the very famous novelist, yeah. Tom Hatton, who owned the cabin that he had died in, and, um, and a lot of other big writers. Carl Taylor was like a, a worldly person at the time. Yeah. He was a rising star in his way. You know, reading his book now, it feels very, very dated. Sure. And I think... You know, he probably wouldn't have existed in the uh, the same realm today as like how could he? Have? You know, so, someone yeah. really famous from that era. But but uh, I think he would. I think of him. He would be someone like Kyle Crichton, who wrote a lot of stuff about okay. Albuquerque and the West and so on, right. and was from here and has just been one hundred percent forgotten today, mm-hmm. and maybe deservedly so. I mean, it's just like it's you know, it's yeah. just that that happens. You know, yeah. You know, it's it's of interest, but um. Anyway, we'll continue. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the story. So, Car- so Carl Taylor is murdered. Uh, the penitentes are blamed. This group that whips themselves and so on. Um, and that's. I think that's where we're that's at. That's pretty isn't much it? where we're at. Yeah, so let's yeah. go ahead. And, Who was uh, responsible? It was Modesto Trujillo a penitente? There's a lot of questions uh, that are really good questions. that are coming well, up. Was it the penitentes who did this? These yeah. these guys who wear black robes and do yeah. strange rituals in the dead of oh, night. Man. Where's the penitentes movie? I want to see that movie. Made by Hispanic called, fi- filmmakers with taste. <laughs> I wanna, <laughs> it's called Lash of the Penitentes, and it's terrible. Uh, there's a documentary about Penitente Moradas, okay. that's, but that's not the same. That's All right, so we'll, we'll go ahead and go on into this now. And, okay. Um, okay, so enjoy. this is part two. Part two. Part this two. is uh, the murder of Carl Taylor. If you want to know who I am, just ask the jailer. My name is Modesto Trujillo I've just come from San Antonio The next day's headlines were all about the murder. Carl Taylor is mysteriously slain, read the Albuquerque Journal. Writer found shot in Mountain Cabin, suspect penitentes. As Albuquerque's residents picked up their papers to learn of the incident, Sheriff Salazar and his officers returned early to the cabin to learn more. The scene was as they had left it only hours before. No new footprints seemed to mark the snowy ground outside. Taylor's clothing lay unruffled, and a wooden chest containing Taylor's manuscripts, including his article on San Antonio's penitentes, seemed untouched. The policemen searched the cabin for signs of the traveler's checks they had heard Taylor always carried on him, but found none. One thing they did discover, however, was a flattened bullet. Sheriff Salazar deduced that it had been flattened from hitting the cabin's stone fireplace, indicating that, although Taylor had only been shot twice, the gun that had shot him had probably been fired three times. State Police Sergeant Carlos Salas worried aloud whether the murder weapon might still be on the property and suggested they conduct a search outside. Exiting the cabin through the rear kitchen door, Salas noted a line of relatively fresh footprints leading from the cabin along a dirt path. He followed the path away from the cabin and up toward the nearby Trujillo home and soon discovered a gun, most likely in a nearby trash pile. Salas yelled excitedly that he had found the gun and the other lawmen ran up the trail to him. The gun, which... Salas, now held with a single finger through its trigger guard, was a thirty-two caliber revolver. It was an older type of handgun known as a night owl, unique in that it could only hold five bullets. All the lawmen gathered around him to stare at it and noted that three discharged cartridges were in the gun's five chambers, one for the back of Taylor's head, 
a wild one toward the fireplace, and one into Taylor's face. The gun was identical to Joe Buchanan's description of the gun Crescendiano Gutierrez had pawned and reclaimed, and yet Salas had found it right by Modesto Trujillo's home, near a path that Trujillo had admitted he had used to escape along when the two masked men had allegedly burst into the cabin. The pieces didn't all fit yet, and they maybe never would perfectly, but Salazar knew he needed to have a conversation with Gutierrez and with Trujillo. While Salazar searched the cabin, San Antonio Justice of the Peace, Faustin Chavez, drove down to Albuquerque with a small group of locals that included Joe Buchanan, the San Antonio gas station owner. Chavez was acting as coroner for the case. Buchanan was on the six-member coroner's jury, and Chavez and Buchanan and the other members of the jury had assembled to hold an inquest over Taylor's body. That is, they had gathered to determine and record the identity of the victim, the cause of his death, and any possible suspects for the benefits of the police and other investigators. Given the suspicious circumstances surrounding the death, this sort of inquest was standard procedure. Salazar and his jurymen met at Blakemore Extra Mortuary in Albuquerque's university area and gathered around the body of Carl Taylor. They noted the unmistakable wounds from the two, two bullets fired through Taylor's skull, but claimed that there was not enough evidence to draw an official conclusion. They declared an open verdict, meaning that another inquest could be performed if additional ev evidence surfaced, and announced that Taylor had been killed by gunshot wounds at the hand of a person or persons unknown. Sometime before 10 o'clock that morning, Tom Hatton, Conrad Richter, and Dr. George St. Clair received permission to enter Taylor's cabin to help prepare his things to be sent to his brother. The police revealed to the three men additional details of the brutal killing, which filled all of them, especially Richter, with a white-hot rage toward the unknown killer or killers. In The Unaccepted Gift, Richter's unpublished 1947 account of the tragedy, he wrote, But what shocked me inexpressibly, and which I can never forget, is that as we sat there quietly talking over the business of arranging Carl's affairs, we could see on the boards in front of us a ghastly and bloody heap of brains, which, confined by the creator and the head of our friend, were to carry him through a brilliant career, but which now, wasted by man, lay spent and useless on the floor. Richter and Hatton soon left the oppressive cabin, but St. Clair remained to sort through Taylor's manuscripts and stayed into the afternoon. A compact wooden chest held copies of The Wide World and other magazines Taylor's work had appeared in, copies of various unpublished manuscripts, and most likely even a copy of Agony in New Mexico, the piece on San Antonio's Penitentes finished barely one day before the murder. The chest would have been a likely place for it, though one account suggests it was sitting on the table nearby. In any event, the article was found. Evidently, the article had not been stolen by masked Penitentes, and stopping its publication had apparently not been the crime's main motive. Upon reading the article, however, law enforcement officials discovered some interesting information about Modesto Trujillo, details that increased their interest in him even more. In a block of paragraphs about the penitentes being good people, normal people, even fairly modern people who drove cars and used hair tonic, Taylor used Trujillo and a prized possession of his as an example. He wrote, The boy who chops wood for me and who, I think, secretly cherishes an ambition someday to be elected the village Cristo and hang upon a cross is immensely proud of his shiny new bicycle. With every passing moment, Trujillo loomed increasingly larger in the minds of the investigators. In only a few hours, he had become a major suspect, even the prime suspect in one of New Mexico's most sensational murder cases, and in only a sentence, he had developed into a possible key player in a penitente murder plot. And yet, he was only a boy. He was only 15. Trujillo was born on February 23, 1920, and raised in San Antonio. He was the son of Maria Lovato de Trujillo and Maria's much older husband, Jose Leon Trujillo. Trujillo's mother would do anything her son desired, loved him to an extreme, and rarely let him do any work that she could do for him. Trujillo's father was often gone for long spells, 
herding sheep at San Mateo on the north slope of the distant Mount Taylor, more than a hundred miles away. Few considered him a bad kid, however. He liked music and crafts and adventure stories, and once carved the words Long John Silver in the wall of his family's outhouse. Tom Hatton thought of him as a kindly, industrious, appreciative lad with a deep sense of gratitude. After Hatton moved down to Albuquerque, Trujillo would come down to visit him, and Hatton would send him to movies or find him various jobs. Once, Hatton even took Trujillo on a fishing trip to the Rio de las Vacas, a small river a short ways northeast, one that Trujillo had never seen before. Trujillo had previously run into trouble with the law on more than one occasion. He had swiped things like playing cards and small amounts of money from the Cedar Crest Resort's cabins and from others, and he had stolen items from Joe Buchanan's gas station. He had once taken a Kodak camera from Tom Hatton and had stolen the bicycle mentioned in Taylor's article from a woman in Albuquerque. On the few occasions when Trujillo was caught for his petty crimes, area locals usually preferred that he work for them as his punishment rather than be turned over to the police. Trujillo had dropped out of school in the fourth grade at the age of 13. He was not unintelligent, but he could not speak or read English well, only Spanish. Trujillo had never really left the area until one summer, when 14 years old, he just disappeared without telling anyone. Later, he came back to town with fabulous stories of hitchhiking to California, where he had worked in tomato fields as a laborer. In September of 1935, Carl Taylor moved next door. He soon hired Trujillo, and as Trujillo could be a hard worker who did his work well, Taylor liked him. Trujillo carried water and firewood, did other chores and ran errands, and Taylor paid him with candy and fruit and a little money. Once, only days before Taylor's murder, Trujillo helped dig Taylor's car out of a mud hole. Trujillo wasn't fond of Taylor, but he held no real ill will toward him. Taylor treated him kindly most of the time, the Albuquerque Tribune reported on February 6, 1936. Occasionally, he spoke harshly to him. Not long before the murder, Trujillo's mother gave birth to a baby boy. It came time for some ceremony, baptism or christening, and Taylor, knowing it was a great event for the infant's family, offered to go into Albuquerque and buy a little white dress for her. And other articles for the ceremony, wrote Neil M. Clark in a 1941 diary account, incorrectly recounting the baby's sex. Modesto went along, and as Taylor bought different things, Modesto saw him pay for them, not with cash but with traveler's checks. All he had to do was write his name at the bottom, and if there was any change coming, it was given to him in cash. Modesto evidently concluded that if only he had those checks, he could do the same thing. I hear the train at night Calling out for me Right, so Modesto Trujillo, back to him. Um... Modesto to me is the most interesting character of the story. I almost think we should like feature him in this episode instead of Taylor, but then it wouldn't connect to Cliffy from the previous. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, no, I just think Modesto is so interesting because like he's such a product of his family and of his his time. You know, I mean, like uh, you know, there's there's gonna be other details that will come into it later. That it just seems like man, this was a guy who was like watching his life happen. And I, I relate to that. I get that. I mean, I've never murdered anybody, but I've certainly made really stupid mistakes while watching myself do it. Why am I doing this? this is, I'm going to regret kid. this for I mean, years. He's a kid. He's a yeah. 15-year-old kid. Right, right. He stole a bike. Yeah. Um, God, well, how many stupid things did you do at that age? I did moronic things. I, I once killed this journalist. You killed a... I remember that. <laughs> you know? But fortunately, um, you grew up and had a family and... Figured it out. All right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> do we know? So he was fifteen. Do you know what he looks like? I, I found myself wanting to know what he looked yeah, like. Yeah. Well, I've got a, I've got one picture here in this book. It's called Towns of the Sandia Mountains. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I was so happy when I found this picture. Oh my gosh. And I've got I've actually got a few in my files, but um, here's a picture in my book with the microphone. I'll show it to you. Okay. All right. There he, he's kind of he, dressed up. Let's as a, see. He is. Let's see. 
Trujillo, that's him right there. He's on, okay. So he's kind of, looks like, like he's dressed up, right? Yeah, like, he's at a party. He's got like a nice... Smiling, look. smiling kid. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, these look, like, uh, these look he's like... He's got some nice white, shiny shoes. He almost is dressed, they're almost just like bullfighters here or something. Right, like, right, they're right. at a party. Uh, it's, it's Trujillo and his cousin. He's coming from a weird home dynamic. Mm-hmm. This is about a year before gone. the killing. His father's gone all the time. Yeah. His mother dotes on him. Yeah. He's. It, it seems like maybe he's a little entitled. Like he kind of he steals a bike. Maybe. You know? Yeah. He definitely feels like if I want something, I'm going to take it. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. And that you know, and, and, that, and that's, that's. And he wants to be a penitente. Maybe. Yeah. According to Taylor's article, according anyway. To Taylor, right. He, yeah. He would like to be the guy who's yeah. hanging on the cross. Yeah. And this will come into something that I read in a little bit here uh, later on in this piece. But he, his grandfather was a penitente. His okay. dad was probably a penitente. There's an oral history about that. His grandfather has been photographed in the Monrata in San Antonio. I have those photos oh, okay. from a Colorado archive. I mean, you know... So he's got the background. He's got the background. And penitentes were often as young as 14. And right. so, like, very so possible. could have been. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's a, um, there's, a well, there's a quote that gets repeated when the story gets retold sometimes of... Some journalist in the 40s saying, like, check his back, you know? Like, all we need to do is look at his back. Like, well, no, (laughs) you know? Why doesn't someone do this? Yeah, Yeah, you know? (laughs) But he would check his back. Because I I, I do think that, you know, there's not necessarily a huge mystery in this story, as in, like, who killed Carl Taylor? Probably Modesto Trujillo. But it it is a muddy, the motive is interesting to me. And, like, I, I think, like, maybe it's as simple as, like, he heard a lot of people bad talking this white guy yeah. who came in there and was talking about stuff. It it led into ill feelings about him and and, and if uh, he snuck into the Murado with him, you oh know, yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah, felt like maybe he didn't appreciate it or yeah. or, or that would be a good way to get in with the penitentiary. And who knows, man? Do we do not know how inappropriate Carl Taylor was with this guy? Like yeah, I, I still like I just just from having researched and read about this topic a lot, you got a hunch. Huh? I got a weird <laughs> hunch, man. I, I want to like find that. I want to go to the Philippines someday and find his file there. Find out like that he got like busted for sleeping with a student or oh, something like yeah. that. I mean, just something. Why do you, pure speculation? Pure speculation. At you know, point, he was married and like the relationship immediately went south. Really, I mean, who knows? Like, it's, you said uh, you said uh, Modesto was not fond of Carl. Well, yeah, and what about this weird like he's like drawing a bath for him? He's like yeah. making this next door neighbor kid give him baths. <laughs> weird. Uh, to, to my modern sensibility, that, that is strange. <laughs> Oh, this is Mara in the background. Yeah. <laughs> just listening to this, and I'm just like, God, what else is this going to happen? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a strange one. Um, um, you know, and also, like, I think those those quotes about where, like, Trujillo calls Taylor master, yeah, those, those are yeah. all from this one pulp magazine uh, uh, that, like, it's really great and has so many good details in it, this article, right. but the dialogue, anytime dialogue kicks into it, which I did borrow from here for this. Yeah, I, I'm like I can't imagine this guy calling the guy master. And like I, just, I, like I said, after watching the yeah, movie, yeah. it's like I don't want to trust right. a lot of what I hear about. Right. This, especially from a pulp magazine. Right. You know, right. It's like what? Ah oh, man. What's their agenda? You know. I, I will say though, isn't it cool what happens to the past after it's past? I mean, like it's just, <laughs> it's so interesting to me, like how everything just becomes so subjective and uncertain. You know, like right. it's like we talk yeah. about this and it's like. 
what are we talking about? Even we're talking about this amalgam of things we read in books and saw and in films and like. And we're never gonna this, know exactly. Yeah, right? and it's we're, just this we're never gonna know. this strange sure. mystery, you know. Although well, I what? do now have a pretty good like visualization of Carl Taylor's brains. Oh, like, God, that's man. come up like Thanks, several Carl Richter, times. Yeah. His, uh, his brain yeah. sitting in a pile on the table. No, it's horrible. Good Lord. Yeah. Oh, I mean, well, I mean, that would be striking. Uh, yeah, if, yeah. If, if you were my writer friend that had been murdered in a cabin and I saw that, I would, like, probably mention that detail. I would, I would feel weird about <laughs> like, seeing your brains. Yeah, yeah, thanks, man. I, that, I, that, I appreciate that. <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> all right. All right. All right. So, Seriously. okay. Um, um, so, what else do you Oh, I wanted to say something else. Can I say something yeah. else? I just remembered this detail, but it's amazing. I love okay. this detail. This is okay. one of my favorite details of the story, and it's not in the piece that I'm reading at all. Um, so this Blake uh, Exmoor whatever mortuary that, that Blake yeah. Exeter yeah. mortuary, guess where that is right now? I don't know. It's the McDonald's at the corner of Yale and Central across from UNM. So wow. Isn't that, that was where it was? That, that was, was It was mortuary. literally that building. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I like, I like to think that they, like, both places had, like, dead flesh being brought to them <laughs> <laughs> for treatment <laughs> regularly. <laughs> <laughs> Both home to, to yeah. grizzly crimes against uh, against uh, nature. It's crazy. Yeah, like I love getting old addresses and then looking them up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you do that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Okay. Anyway, uh, I'll look. anything else? Yeah. Not really. No, I, okay. used to, I used to sell blood at Yale. Oh my uh, gosh! Down the way there, and I would always stop at that McDonald's afterwards. Oh man, uh, I was probably like that's so weird. Twenty-one years old. Wow, but, I've never done that yet. But eh, fingers crossed. <laughs> can't recommend it. I, I just don't think I would do well. That I think I'd faint. I had a I I knew a woman that that donated plasma and then like immediately died. Like she stood up oh, and was lightheaded and damn. fell over and cracked her head open and died. Yeah, that's pretty bad. You know, it's just awful. I, I mean, just, uh, you know, they have a doctor on. Okay, this is a tangent for sure, but they have a doctor on staff, right, who gives right. you a checkup, and he was the dirtiest doctor I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Like, he clearly had not had a shower in, like, four days. <laughs> he was just, like... I'm a doctor. <laughs> he was not, like, he, he, was, he was somebody who was just, like, <coughs> medical school brought me here, oh, you know, and, and plus whatever... I don't know. Let's just assume he had a substance abuse problem. Right, 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 I'm just right, going right. to assume that. Sure. Because how else do you become the doctor at the, the Yale Blood Clinic? Oh, man. Anyway. Yeah. Um, We're talking to you, Yale Blood Clinic. All right. So, <laughs> all right, so let's go back to uh, Modesto Trujillo. All right. Um, apparently used the gun that this other... Well, he stashed the gun that yeah. this other kid yeah. pawned. Right, right. He had, like, the gun was found in his wood pile or whatever. Oh, I think we're going to hear more about this in just a second. Okay. Yeah, well, and, no and, spoilers. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. Let's go back. No, it's not, I don't believe in spoilers. Life you once had is over. want to know who I am. Sheriff Salazar and the other lawmen headed down into Albuquerque, eager to clear up the matter of the gun and its ownership. They were certain the gun had belonged to Crescentiano Gutierrez, but it was Trujillo, not Gutierrez, who had been at the scene of the crime and who may have been protecting the penitentes. The officers talked to Gutierrez first, whom they had held overnight. Generally surly and willful, Gutierrez mellowed as Salazar explained that Gutierrez was a chief suspect in a murder case. Soon he became more talkative. Yes, the gun was mine once, he said but I sold it to another fellow. And who was that? asked Salazar. I sold it to Modesto Trujillo. 
Gutierrez told Salazar that Trujillo had bought the gun from him for $2, an exchange that must have taken place sometime between late December of 1935 and the murder on February 5, 1936. As Taylor was Trujillo's only known source of income at the time, it's likely that Taylor indirectly and ironically paid for the very weapon later used to kill him. Convinced of Gutierrez's innocence, Salazar left him, and Gutierrez was soon released. Salazar then walked down the hall to Trujillo's cell, accompanied by Santos Garcia of the district attorney's office. There, Salazar shoved the gun in front of Trujillo's face. There it is, he yelled. There's the gun you used to kill Carl Taylor. Modesto shook his head and sunk down into a seat before shouting at Salazar that he had not killed him. Sure you did, Salazar said. We know this is your gun. Trujillo seemed flustered and confused, but finally admitted that the gun was his. It was his, he said, but he didn't kill Taylor. He had only hidden it because he knew it would make people suspicious. Two men in masks had done the killing, he insisted, and he had no idea who they were. District Attorney Thomas J. Mabry joined the interrogation, which continued for approximately 35 minutes. Mabry mentioned Trujillo's reputation as a thief. He pointed out that when Trujillo had been taken into custody, he had been wearing denim pants, a cap, and a dark sweater, all of which were exact matches for Trujillo's own description of the masked killer. Mabry showed Trujillo the gun and narrated how he believed the gun had gone from Gutierrez to Trujillo to just outside of Trujillo's home and how the three empty cartridges in the gun's chamber corresponded perfectly with the three bullets fired in Taylor's cabin. He told Trujillo that his footprints had been seen coming out of the cabin's back door, while no footprints had been seen going to the front, and said that only Trujillo, the sole person whose footprints recorded an exit from the back, could have dragged Taylor's body against the inside of the cabin's front door. With each new piece of damning evidence, Trujillo weakened, until finally, at 10.07 a.m., he confessed. Who told you to do it, Mabry asked, fishing for a connection to San Antonio's penitentes. No one told me, Trujillo said. I shot him for his money. Trujillo then proceeded to tell Salazar, Mabry, and Garcia the grisly details of the murder. On the night of the murder, he said he and Taylor had been sitting and reading in the cabin. Taylor seemed entirely unaware that Trujillo had a gun with him. Taylor was at his desk, his side to the fireplace, a book in front of him. Determined to steal Taylor's traveler's checks and money, Trujillo said he raised his handgun and shot Taylor in the back of the head. Taylor fell from his chair onto the floor near the fireplace, still alive but almost completely immobilized. Trujillo shot him again to make certain he was dead at close range through the forehead. In a strangely considerate act, Trujillo dragged Taylor's body away from the fireplace and over near the front door to prevent it being scorched. He then searched Taylor's pockets for money or traveler's checks but turned up nothing. He located Taylor's overcoat, however, and took from it Taylor's wallet. He also managed to find a gold watch, Taylor's car keys, $180 in traveler's checks, $14.40 in cash, and some postage stamps. Inexplicably, despite having confessed to the murder, Trujillo consistently denied having fired more than two shots inside the cabin, despite the evidence to the contrary, and he denied having kicked or beaten Taylor. As Trujillo told this story to Salazar and the others, presumably in Spanish, he reportedly seemed emotionally detached from the entire affair, and yet more than one account mentions that Trujillo acted out the crime as he confessed, with a thumb and forefinger imitating the gun, and Mabry playing the role of Taylor. Whether Trujillo did this out of an uncontainable feeling for the subject or at the suggestion of the police is unknown, as is whether or not Trujillo secretly enjoyed pretending to murder one of his interrogators. After the murder and theft, Trujillo said, he ran from the cabin out the back door, threw the gun aside out of fear of being caught, and hurriedly buried the stolen items beneath a twisted scrub oak somewhere between 150 and 350 feet from the cabin. Trujillo had taken very little time to bury what he had taken, as his only tools would have been his hands and the toe of his shoe. In the jail cell, the officer provided Trujillo with a pencil and a piece of paper. Trujillo sketched out a rough map of where he'd buried the things 
and within 27 minutes of Trujillo's initial confession, officers had headed up the mountains to recover the evidence. The crime's motive, if Trujillo was to be believed, was simple robbery. Taylor had what Trujillo had wanted, and Trujillo acted to make it his. Salazar and Mabry dismissed as irrelevant any possible involvement of the penitentes and released the details of Trujillo's confession into newspapers across the country. Most New Mexico papers, long familiar with the practices of the penitentes and at least somewhat understanding of the private nature of the penitentes' rituals, focused mainly on the details of the actual murder, while most newspapers outside the state used the murder merely as a lead into writing about this unfamiliar, bloody, and exotic sect. Such national articles were very likely influenced and encouraged by the openly expressed suspicions of two men, Roy D.S. Horn, Taylor's literary agent, and Raymond Moley, editor of Today magazine. Horn, in addition to his profession as a literary agent, was also a writer of pulp adventure stories. Eccentric and energetic, Horn had lost an eye to a bullet during World War I and had written the words to the song Navy Blue and Gold, which is still published in present-day Navy songbooks. Moley, aside from acting as Taylor's magazine editor, was also an advisor to President Franklin D. Roosevelt and was the principal author of Roosevelt's first inaugural address and his oft-quoted line, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Because of the letter Taylor had mailed to Horn shortly before being murdered and the paragraph about Trujillo's penitente ambitions in the article Taylor had written for Moley, neither Horn nor Moley believed Trujillo's supposed motive of robbery. The two men spoke loudly to the American public and turned the story of Taylor's murder into what many scholars now regard as the single incident most responsible for introducing the penitentes to the majority of Americans. Coverage of the story was typically sensational, and the murder and the idea of penitente involvement were reported across the country with a breathless enthusiasm. Headlines announced, Boy's confession and killing of writer fails to calm cult vengeance. Penitent Americans torture themselves. Blood right of the scourges of Satan. And brutal murder of wandering writer unveils weird New Mexico torture cult he was about to expose. Many people have noted that despite the sheriff's conclusion that robbery was the crime's sole motive, the media advocated penitente complicity. To reporters in the business of selling newspapers, a New Mexico teenager stealing checks and stamps was good for an opening paragraph but entire wild and fanatical tribes working themselves into maniacal frenzy was the story. The 1936 national coverage of the murder was denounced in its entirety as yellow journalism by the Santa Fe New Mexican, though the media could at least be applauded for continuing to raise questions. And there certainly were questions to be asked, questions that still need to be asked. For instance, could the murder of Carl Taylor have actually been a penitente plot? Could Modesto Trujillo himself have been a penitente? And could Carl Taylor have been assigned by the government to watch the penitentes? These questions do need to be examined, because if there's any truth to them, the story is not merely the story of Modesto Trujillo lashing out at Carl Taylor. It's the story of the penitentes attacking the U.S. government. The big question is, of course, could the murder of Carl Taylor have been a penitente plot? For decades, penitente scholars have completely dismissed this idea as little more than the wishful thinking of newsmen. But could the penitentes have been responsible for Taylor's killing? The evidence in the case overwhelmingly points to Trujillo as the murderer. He had the gun, the access to Taylor, and footprints that matched the ones leading away from Taylor's cabin. Most damning of all, he had confessed the crime and had known exactly where Taylor's stolen belongings were. And if it had been a penitente plot, it would seem to have been a very unsuccessful one. The penitentes had gone from a mostly obscure regional group to the subject of sensational newspaper and magazine and newsreel stories across the country. They had gone from a sect on the cusp of being officially recognized by the Catholic Church to an embarrassing subject that the archbishop tried to avoid. If the murder had never taken place, the penitentes would very likely have been accepted into the mainstream church a full decade before they actually were. Another question needs asking, however, before the idea of a conspiracy can be dismissed. Was Trujillo a penitente? And if so, was his murder of Taylor motivated even in some small part by that affiliation? 
Trujillo's family was the Penitente family. His grandfather, Demetro Garcia, lived very near the San Antonio Morada in a rare February 1936 photograph, perhaps taken by Taylor before his death, shows Garcia kneeling inside the Morada in front of the altar. Anecdotal evidence suggests that Trujillo's father was a penitente as well. As for Trujillo himself, the only extant evidence of his involvement with the penitentes is Taylor's written claim that the young man secretly cherished an ambition someday to be elected the village Cristo and hang upon a cross. Taylor's article was a mostly fair one, with very little of the blood-soaked sensationalism common in other articles written on the subject around the same time, and he would almost certainly not have said such a thing for no reason. Also, it was generally agreed that only penitentes and their families could go into the Murata, and Taylor claimed Trujillo had been the one to take him inside. Some old-time San Antonio area residents have suggested that Trujillo was too young to have been a penitente, but he was almost 16, the age of another local youth, Benito Gonzalez, when he was initiated by San Antonio's Brotherhood a few years later. Trujillo's family background would almost certainly have ensured his consideration for membership, as most new recruits came from penitente families, and his age would almost certainly not have been problematic, as 14 was a generally accepted age of admittance into the Brotherhood. Even the official police reports on the crime raised the connection, despite having already dismissed the crime as merely murder for the sake of robbery. The youth is believed to be a member of the Penitent Brothers, it read. The Cleveland Plain Dealer dismissed the ambiguity of the statement as the timid submission of New Mexico authorities to politically savvy penitentes. The prosecutor knew there could be no doubt on that point. Strip the youth's shirt from his back. If it is cut to shreds, cut from the shoulders to the base of the spine with huge and ghastly scars. If over each kidney three wounds gape, then he is a member. Otherwise not. Even if Trujillo was a penitente, the question still remains, what was his motive for killing Taylor? Why would he trade a life of freedom for a life in jail? For a watch and some money? To show what happens to those who disrespect tradition? Or because it was his duty? Though often thought-provoking, past attempts to answer these questions are contradictory and unreliable. One account claimed Trujillo shot Taylor after Taylor showed him the finished draft of Agony in New Mexico with its paragraph about Trujillo's penitente ambitions. Another suggested that the murder may have been Trujillo's assigned form of penance, a supreme sacrifice of innocence and freedom made for the cause of the Brotherhood. Yet another advanced the elaborately detailed story of Trujillo being jealous of three friends who had been accepted as possible choices for the Cristo, the honored penitente chosen to hang on the cross once a year, and claimed that Trujillo had then killed Taylor in the hope of gaining the favor of the penitentes. And perhaps the most intriguing suggestion comes from a 1990 interview with lifelong San Diego Mountains local Jose Candelaria. Instead of Trujillo and Taylor, he shot him because they didn't want him taking pictures. He was going to take pictures, but the boy didn't let him. What happened to the photographs Taylor claimed he took in the Murata is uncertain. One may be in an archive in Colorado, but perhaps Taylor was only boasting. Perhaps he never took the photographs at all, but only intended to. The photographs were never published, either with the article in Today magazine or as part of any of the frenzied publicity that followed the murder. Also deserving some scrutiny is Faustin Chavez, San Antonio's Justice of the Peace. According to a 1991 interview with Chavez's longtime neighbor, Bob Cooper, Chavez was very possibly a penitente himself, perhaps even a high-ranking one, as Cooper believed it was Chavez who collected the rent from Anglo business owners operating near the penitente Murata. If Chavez was a prominent penitente, there are several details in the story worth noting. Chavez was the first man Trujillo told about the murder, Chavez was the first person besides Trujillo to enter the crime scene, and Chavez even disturbed the scene when he pushed Taylor's body aside with the cabin's front door. And, despite all the official talk about Trujillo's footprints being the only ones leading from the cabin, Chavez's footprints would have had to have led up to the cabin's front door, as would the footprints of the small crowd that had accompanied him. Two penitentes really could have come to the front door to murder Taylor, and as long as they came back with Chavez's crowd, their earlier footprints would have been indistinguishable from the footprints as members of the crowd. As Justice of the Peace, Chavez was also responsible 
for assembling the coroner's jury to examine Taylor's body and make definitive statements that could ultimately have had significant influence in the case. Unfortunately for Trujillo, however, at least one of the jury members Chavez chose was a former victim of Trujillo's petty thefts. Joe Buchanan, owner of the San Antonio gas station Trujillo had once stolen from, was one member of the coroner's jury and almost certainly couldn't have viewed Trujillo's role in the matter without taking his personal experience with Trujillo into account. Trujillo would later have similar problems with the jury at his trial. Whether the murder was simply the most violent part of a simple robbery or whether it was something far bigger, it seems apparent that many of those involved in investigating the crime were informed and motivated by a wide range of personal influences, sympathies, and affiliations that may have been at odds with any attempt at an objective investigation. As the world talked to penitentes and searched for motives, Trujillo's mother sat at home and cried. She is prostrated, apparently unable to comprehend the tragedy that has descended upon her little household, reported the Albuquerque Tribune. Trujillo's father came home from San Mateo at his wife's request to comfort her. Trujillo himself sat in his cell, awaiting a trial that would soon result in the story's second major tragedy, the bulk of a life spent growing old behind bars. In the end, his motives were irrelevant. He had killed, and now the law would dictate his future. During his time in jail before his trial, Trujillo was quiet and emotionally distant. He would sit and stare at his cell wall or work at length crafting a beaded belt that he hoped to sell or play with the Spanish words of a song he was writing to an old tune. He had begun writing the song before the murder in the mountains, but now the song had changed. If you want to know who I am, just ask the jailer. I am Modesto Trujillo, who has just come from San Antonio. Just ask the jailer. Name is Modesto Trujillo. I've just come from San Antonio. Well, so, so I'm pretty sure he did it. Yeah, he probably did it. But I, but it's you know, I think there's such there's still so many weird details of it, like that he had been beaten details. about the head. That doesn't fit in his confession, really. Right, you know, right, right. You know, like the three bullets, and he insisted on two. That could have been just his now, memory being weird. Did he? He landed in the fireplace? I guess toward the end, yeah. His leg got badly burnt. Okay. Yeah. There's some weird stuff, too. Like, there's all these newsreels about it that were destroyed. I found this weird old article. Yeah, like, at the time, they were, like, considered something that would hamper a fair trial. Oh. What could have been in those newsreels? It's so weird. Well, I I, I, I can't imagine, but... um... Okay, let's talk about the movie. Yeah, yeah. So it came from this. So 1937, a movie came out called uh, The Lash of the Penitentes. And go to YouTube and watch the trailer. I mean, maybe take your kids out of the room because there's it's nudity and violence and all sorts of stuff in it. Yeah. Incredibly terrible, I would say. Like, the, the movie? Or yeah, the oh, yeah, yeah. What I saw oh. of the movie. I oh, thought really? it, was, it was ridiculous. I like it. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, you like it probably because of the story. I like because the story connection to, and because it exists. Yeah. But I think I think if you take an objective look at this movie, yeah, and it's um, it's first of all, the plot of it is Carl Taylor comes to New Mexico, yeah, sees a penitente ritual, yeah. gets killed. Like okay, that's the plot okay. of the movie. Yeah, there's no there's no dramatic buildup or anything. You know, oh, the penitentes are evil the whole time. They're going to sure, kill him, sure, etc. Um, However, that's just because the movie's been edited so badly. If yeah, we had the whole story, right. maybe, we would have... Maybe. There's a subplot about Modesto Trujillo being an artist who has an affair with Carl Taylor's girlfriend. Uh, there's there's uh, Carl's girlfriend 
agreeing to lash her, to tie herself up to a cross, topless, and be right. whipped for for Carl's sins, so that he'll be saved. Okay, well, I, I mean, that's I, I, I can't say for sure. That's stuff that didn't make it into the right. into the the censored cut that we. However, seen I will say the censored cut that I saw. Yeah. The narrator is so over the top, talking about the primitive, the savage penitentes, the like bloodthirsty rites that they're performing, and so forth. It's clearly not about an objective view hmm. of the penitentes hmm. or an objective view of the story. It's about how uh, Carl Taylor discovers this ugly, bloody cult in New Mexico oh, yeah. that's yeah. like just the antithesis of uh, modern American civilization, yeah. you know. I think, it, okay, so do you remember at the end okay. what they say? The, the, like literally the last scene. No, vaguely. Say, Remind me. Wake up, America! Oh, the heart the of heart it of Africa is being beats in the Rockies. Oh yeah, it's super racist the way it ends. I mean, it was like, yeah, um, yeah. How, what does this have to do with it's, Africa? It's been racist enough, and you feel like yeah. the guy uh, who's writing it's like, how can we be even more racist? The very you? heart of Africa let's is beating drag. at your door or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So let's, let's Dude, if you can get sound Africans. bites from that for this, that would be yeah, great. That would be, be, be yeah, okay. Um, um, but so um. Yeah, interesting. To me, that tells yeah. me... We're not in capable hands here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And not only that, yeah, yeah. but this is the story that America wants to right, see. Right, right. It's, it's about Carl Taylor. Yeah. The go-getter reporter heading out to New Mexico mm-hmm. who, uh, who finds himself plunged into mm. these this is, backwards, This dark world of another culture. And, yeah, yeah. It would um, be a great movie if some if a good filmmaker yes, had a it. Good I mean, filmmaker. Oh man, it would yeah. be a great story. Yeah. But um this is this is this is some of the, a wonderful curiosity about Last of the Penitentes. Last of the Penitentes. One of my favorite writers is James Agee. If you guys aren't haven't read James Agee, just read James Agee. He's so wonderful. He wrote A Death in the Family. He wrote Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, which is amazing. Um and oh, he wrote The Morning Watch. Man, that's my favorite of them all. Um but he he was also Times movie reviewer for a long time and his re- reviews are all collected in this book AG on film with an introduction by Martin Scorsese um, and here he is he's, he was reviewing films in the 40s mostly mm-hmm. which seems like a pretty dismal time for movies reading through this sometimes yeah, man. Yeah. it's like wow but listen to this in an adults only theater recently I saw two elderly movies The Lash of the Penitentes and Glamour for Sale the former contains some genuine and interesting shots suspended in an aspect of terrifyingly pitiful and funny ineptitudes. They said something about the other one. I want... Let's see, let's see, let's see. Uh, let's see here. Um, I think he said something else. No, maybe that was it. Okay, yeah. That's okay. his review, yeah. Yeah, well... Some uh, genuine yes. and interesting shots suspended in an aspect of terrifyingly pitiful and funny ineptitudes. Now, what is interesting about this yeah. is uh, supposedly the... Um, the photographer who got his finger mm-hmm. supposedly mm-hmm. blown off, um, he had taken some actual footage. Yeah, there was like documentary footage cut in with it. Penitente yeah. rites, Medicinas dances, mm-hmm. and so forth. He also took some footage of a... So my impression was he took footage of several unrelated aspects of New Mexican culture, including a penitente ceremony, mm. including a Medicinas dance, yeah, which... Yeah. Um, That's so great to see. I love that scene. We should probably explain that. So yeah. a Medicinas dance is... Uh, uh, Hispanic New Mexicans mm-hmm. perform these dances. Uh, how would you describe them? Well, they have a specific saints' days that they perform them right. at, specific feast days uh, that 
that uh, man, if you ever get a chance to go to them, they're just wonderful. They're like they're. I'm right. I'm not a religious person, but man, I have had wonderful times at those Saints days up in the mountains. They like yeah. the churches. Some of the churches like like the Canaanite church is too small for anyone but a priest to stand in, so everyone gathers out in front right. and they dance these dances that kind of tell the story of um, Cortez. Mm. A little bit. There's Cortez and La Malinche, this virginal mm. uh, presence who's usually pr- pl- played by a little girl and uh, all dressed in white. And the songs are just incredible. Oh, my God. They're just and these, so... these dances, they look like... Yeah. You know, the kind of dance you see at, a, at the Native yeah. American they, they, People around. wear these big masks. You can just see the cross-cultural pollination. Right, I mean, right. it, it, you can see the influence of... Of uh, yeah, the Native American influence on on the, the Spanish dances. It's fa- they're fantastic. Right. Well, at all the little churches up in the mountains, really all the churches around here at all, you can go to them in Bernalillo. If you go to the uh, Hispanic here. Cultural Center, they do them yeah. every, uh, once a year or so. They're wonderful. Really, they're just, quite cool. they just feel like, you can close your eyes and just feel like, man, I am a hundred years ago. Is the be- <laughs> have you been to, have you been to Matachinas? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I figured. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's important to note, they are not the same as a penitentiary. Oh, no, very different. Right, I mean, maybe but, they got the same people but the Venn Venn diagrams are pretty different there's going to be overlap yeah Um, and then they had so this this film also had a uh, like a game where they grab the rooster from the ground do you do you know what I'm talking about yeah like they they bury a rooster up to its neck and then they ride by and they grab it out of the ground uh, as they're riding by on a horse Hmm. again not a penitente thing but they're all being presented as though these were penitente rites, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, yeah. But but it's authentic footage. It's just been sort of, uh, um, injudiciously handled. You know, it's it the the agenda is clear. The agenda of this movie is to make uh, New Mexico look like a totally weird place mm-hmm. under the sway of these like yeah. backwards. And I'm using scare quotes here. Yeah. Penitentes who yeah. are like running everything. Oh, yeah. Where in fact, yes, it, New Mexico has a pretty yeah. different cultural origin than a lot of uh, of the United States. Yeah, yeah. And as a result, it has different cultural expressions. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, to say that that's like some kind of sign of savagery or something, which is what this movie wants to do, and what a lot of the articles at the time wanted to say. To me, it, it shows that there was this, this friction, this mm-hmm. sudden like, okay, so you've got, you know, white America coming into New Mexico, mm-hmm. um, butting up against local New Mexican tradition right, and culture, right, right. and the uh, white America wants to say, this is, this is backwards, this is primitivism, you mm-hmm. know, and so forth, and this is uh, the... the not only that, but it's dangerous. Right, right, right. You have to say that yeah. these, these penitentes are, are a group that needs to be stamped out because right. they're savage. Right, you know, they're right. And, um, that Heart of Africa ending at that yeah, is exactly. so strange. Yeah, we should find that soundbite because that's incredible. Like, <laughs> yeah, wake up America. I mean, you got to think like that's just appealing to like a much broader racism too. Like right. it, yeah. even like that's so, so strange, you know? What does anything that just happened in that movie have to do with Africa? Right. You know? Other it's than, just like, oh, this is weird. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. a guy from Indiana. I don't, I don't get it. It's scary. It's symbolic of... Um, it's like Africa. All of Africa. Oh, of like everything unknown or something right, like that. Exactly, you know, everything... Exactly. Like we like, yeah. you know, we yeah. don't... 
we don't like churches where people whip themselves. Right. right. <laughs> you know, we we don't like Medicinas dancing. It looks weird. Yeah. Like we want things to be like they are in right. the middle of Indiana. I mean, really, if you're going to go to a church, go to a church with something sensational. Go to go to a snake handling church. Go to the Penitente Murata. Like, I mean, well, and that, know, like, that's an interesting <laughs> thing is that these, you know, uh, weird expression, weird expressions of religion are, are found all yeah. over the place. You know, you've got snake handlers in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. You've got like crazy um, ecstatic churches in East mm-hmm. Texas. You know, it's, yeah. you don't have to go to New Mexico in 1900 to yeah. find like weird expressions of faith. Yeah. It's just um because of the the cultural baggage there Truth. it seems like extra weird yeah. to uh you know movie makers or whatever. Yeah. So, so speaking of churches, I was just walking my kid to sleep before you came over, uh, okay. my my youngest, and I was walking over in the dark over by that there's like a there's like a kingdom hall, a Jehovah's Witness church over there. And this guy runs up out of me out of the dark and he goes, Are you Jehovah's Witness? <laughs> I'm like, No. And I'm like, just walking my kid to sleep. And he, he's like, Do you know what Jehovah's Witness is? And I'm like, No. And he's like, Where can I find one? <laughs> I'm like, Are you here to murder them or something? I'm like, I should tell you. Like, I think there's a phone number over there on the building. It's weird. It was really strange. It reminds me of uh, yeah. <laughs> a, couple, a couple years ago, by which I mean at least 15. Yeah. <laughs> I was walking down on uh, Catherine Avenue, okay. south of um, south of Central, a good way. It's like oh, yeah. a, a mile or so. Mm-hmm. And I I was walking to a party, and this guy walks up to me, and he says, "Do you know where the hookers on Central are?" <laughs> Central, <laughs> like, I guess. <laughs> what I said was, uh, "No," but yeah, later on I was like, "I bet you know that guy was pretty far from Central." It seems like a weird question to ask. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, let's get back to Modesto. Okay, Modesto. Yeah. So, what, what do you think? I love Modesto, man. He's my favorite character in the whole story. I just, what do you like about him? What's, what's I just, uh, man, I just, I don't know. We've hung out and drunk together a few times over the years, and you've heard me go on about free will and determinism. I just feel like Modesto is such an example of like how how little people are really accountable for their own lives. I mean, I, I just think like, man, that guy. Yeah, had a had a lot of lot of rough things, man. His dad was like an abusive alcoholic, you know, yeah. probably abusive. I've heard some stuff, and um, you know, and it was normal to back then to hit your kids sometimes or something. You know, yeah. it, was, it was a different different rougher time, and um, you know, his, his dad was rough. His mom was doing the best she could, but she was. Right. She had like a little kid. She had a baby, and, and it seems kind of clear yeah. that he was kind of screwed up. Yeah, and you, you know, know? Like, dude. Yeah. Oh, there's a story that I I can't believe I didn't put in here about him, where he was like 13 and he had a girlfriend, mm-hmm. and he was shooting at trees while she hid behind them and thinking it was just hilarious. I mean, this is somebody <laughs> that was like desensitized to violence at a oh, really early man. age, you know. There is a game you should not play. Yeah, don't play the shooting at trees <laughs> game. While anyone don't has, do that. That's yeah, true. not cool. You know, and, and, but I mean, like, here, here's what I think about Modesto. Like, um, so I feel like he was kind of outside of himself watching all this stuff. I mean, I, I feel I, I, like, I. What do you mean by that exactly? I, I just, well, I just think like, like who, sort of who kills who kills somebody yeah. and and has it feel normal as a teenager? I mean, like, you know. The story that really highlights this to me is uh, 11 years, I believe it was, after he was arrested and sent to prison in Santa Fe, um, he, he, he got out of jail and he was on parole and he immediately uh, 
stole a camera, a movie camera, out of somebody's car. He saw it, and the second he had it, he was like, oh no, why did I do this? I'm going to go back to jail. And and he ran to a pawn shop just to get rid of it. He was like, i got to get rid of this. Just the way that, like, he reacted in this story to his own actions, to me, says, this is a man apart from, like, his own worst deeds. This is somebody that's just like, like, why do I keep making these horrible horrible mistakes that wreck my life? And I've made some horrible mistakes that have hurt my life before. I I understand how you can do this, you know? And, and, um, And so he was, you know, put his name on the pawn ticket, because I don't think he was, like, a great mind of his time, you know? I don't think he was, like, a... a, a, Which pawn ticket? I, uh, when he pawned, he pawned this movie, this movie camera okay. that he stole, like, and he put his name on it. I mean, okay. and he, so he just put his like, name on it. just like he had signed his name to the right. traveler's checks that he stole from Carl Taylor years before. I mean, like, this was somebody so, that, like, oh, did he do he, that? Yeah, he made bad decisions. Okay. So we can you know? say, clearly not dealing, this is not a criminal mastermind. No, Einstein here. did not murder Carl right. Taylor, you know? But, like, <laughs> but, I mean, but, you know... He was also an imaginative, interesting kid. He carved yeah. Long John Silver into the wall of an right, outhouse. Right. He had a he had an inner life. He was a right, he right. at fourteen years old. He just ditched his world to go hitchhike around the country and go work yeah, in the tomato fields in California. That's to me. I he's think, a person. You know, it's like if you could do an interview, like an oh, in-depth man. interview, yeah. with him, that would be fascinating, right? Like, so this is an anecdote about Modesto Trujillo that I cannot verify. I was told this story by Bob Cooper okay. who lived in Modesto Trujillo's house mm. afterward. And Bob Cooper is the grandson of the founder of Presbyterian Hospital, Hugh, Hugh yeah, okay. B. Cooper. And, uh, and is just like an amazing person. I, I mean, he died recently, but he's, I, he was one of my favorite interviews working on this book. Um, but Bob Cooper told me that he found an Albuquerque Journal article about Modesto Trujillo in his 80s driving a uh, a van for an Albuquerque nursing home that he got oh. that he got out of prison later and married when he was in his 80s and had like a life at last during that time. I have so- never found any clues to this, but apparently, l- let me just finish this anecdote really quick. Oh, yeah. it, it, apparently, he was driving this van for the nursing home, and he gave this quote to the journal that said. Um, sometimes we drive up to the mountains, which I really like because I used to live up there. Oh. And that's just it. Yeah. And like, it doesn't ma- mention anything about like, and he murdered a journalist it's in 1936. That it's history just, is sort of I, yeah. severed at that point. But I've never been able to find them. And I've combed through all, every index for the journal and the Tribune trying to find that article. Bob, what year would that be? You think? Bob Cooper. I don't know, man. Um, I don't know. I bugged him about that. I was like, please tell me where this is. Show know, me this. No. So how long was he in prison for? So so he was he uh, was in a, for eleven years and then he uh, got out. So I guess he would have been how old would he have been then like twenty seven or something like that when when God, he when he got out. Yeah. And then and then he violated his parole and got immediately sent back. And according to Bob Cooper, who is pretty much the only person that's been able to like tell me right. about this final stage in his life, he got out like in his eighties. Yeah. And so I don't know when that wow. when would that have been much later, you know, um, and uh, you know. I, I trust Bob that I think he would have told me a true story, and so I, I've always wanted to find verification yeah, for that. Yeah, but we should do that. yeah, yeah, but but it's you know it, apparently Modesto has a sister that still lives in the Manzano Mountains too yeah. around here. I'd I'd love to track her down and talk to her. Um, I've not had luck with that, and I, I had a I had a second party trying to arrange a meeting at one point, uh, and it just fell apart. Like just find her, like just go knock on her door. Yeah, like, yeah, hey, that's the thing to do. Yeah, here's yeah. this horrible story from yeah. years ago. Hey, remember your brother? Family? That, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I just think Modesto is a fascinating character. I just think, you know, 
I wrote one more little piece here in another draft of this piece that I'd kind of like to read. It kind of, yeah. it kind of has some of my feelings on. On the day of the murder, February 5th, 1936, the life of Carl Taylor ended abruptly in a flash of gunfire and a haze of smoke. The dutiful processions of blood through veins and arteries, the solemn rites of a beating heart, and the self-inflicted tortures and ecstasies of a wild and restless soul all came at once to a sudden stop, to a time and a place where Taylor's every ambition and every inquiry rapidly resolved and dissolved in a single perfect answer, in blackness, in pain, in the end of pain, in the completeness and finality that can only come with death. But on that same fateful day in 1936, someone else began to die as well, Modesto Trujillo. His death would have nothing of the swiftness and immediacy that had marked Taylor's. His death would take years, decades. Not even 16 years old, he would be locked behind bars in a county jail. He would be tried as an adult and receive a sentence of 99 years. He would ride in chains to Santa Fe, would move into a cell of the state prison, and would change from Modesto Trujillo, bicycle-riding youth, to Modesto Trujillo, convicted murderer. For 11 long years, Trujillo would live behind bars, waking, moving, eating, resting, working, sleeping, exercising, only when others allowed him to. In 1948, thanks to 11 years of good behavior and some influential friends, he would find himself once again a free man at the age of 28, free to start over and do better, or not. After a mere six months of freedom, Trujillo would spot an expensive movie camera in an unlocked car, and he would take it impulsively, almost without thinking. In an instant, he would regret the theft, but when he would go back to return it, he would find an angry crowd, would hurry away frightened, and would carelessly pawn it at a local pawn shop. I was going to get a good job, keep out of trouble, save some money and get married, he would tell reporters. But instead, he would return to prison for violating parole and would spend most of the rest of his life there, growing older and quieter every day. Only as a very old man would he ever leave. During his time in jail, before his murder trial, Trujillo rarely spoke and seemed very emotionally distant. He would sit and stare at his cell wall, work at length crafting a beaded belt that he hoped to sell, or play with the Spanish words of a song he was writing to an old tune. He had begun writing the song before the murder in the mountains, but now the song had changed. If you want to know who I am, just ask the jailer. I am Modesto Trujillo, who has just come from San Antonio. So I think you need to write this book. I, I want to write a book about this one. I really kind of do, you know? I, I'm, I'm, it's such a... It, I, you know, honestly, I think if I, are we recording? Yeah. We are, okay. I think if I wrote this as a book, I would write it as a novel. I would, yeah. I'd like to get inside Modesto Trio's head a little more, you know, than I think nonfiction would allow. You think so? Yeah. And, and Carl Taylor's too. I mean, I think you could, you could, you could make some leaps, but it's, it's so putting, you're putting yeah. something together that has so many details that have been lost, you know? Right, right. You know? Which, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I do, there is going to be a chapter in the book I'm working on now that's about half about this. It's, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, so, yeah. so uh, it seems clear yeah. Modesto Trujillo totally did it. Sure. I mean, like, can we just say that? Yeah, I All think right. he probably did. Yeah. Um, the question is, why did he do it? Right, right, right. So you seem to kind of be leaning towards he might have had some penitente. Uh... Man, it could have been ten different things, you know? I mean, that, there was a mention in, in a, piece of, a piece of this that I read earlier about Trujillo helping Carl Taylor get his car out of the mud one time. Yeah. And during that, but I, I've read a more detailed account of that, and Taylor was, like, horrible to him when that was going on, screaming yeah. at him for, like, not doing it better. And, like, I mean, I, I think I think it was a weird, not-even relationship. And It would be really interesting the, to see, like, 
what did what did Carl Taylor think about like these these young men yeah. that he had in his service? Yeah, you seriously. Know, at various times. And he paid them in fruit and candy and a little money. Yeah, pay me in money, dude. Like I mean, like, <laughs> you know, you have you're selling articles, you're writing for right. the newspaper, like. You're paying me in fruit and candy? How condescending are you? You've read his book, right? Uh, I, I, I can't say I've read the whole book. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've skimmed it, and I've, I've read relevant chapters. But How was how he sort of uh, dealing with racial issues? I think he was always kind of paternalistic yeah. and colonialist a little bit. Right. I mean, I think he was fairer than most. I think he was mm-hmm. a pretty progressive voice. I mean, his article, Agony in New Mexico, about the penitentes, it's a good article, man. That's, it yeah. really... It, <clears throat> he... Uh, he goes out of his way to say, these are people that, they're just the people in the town. Right. They, right, they right, use right. hair tonic, they drive cars, yeah. they wear makeup, they like, they're normal people, you know? They're, they're, it's kind of like, I, I always think about the Masons. Yeah. You know? It's like, on the one hand, yeah, you've got yeah. a secret organization. Sure, sure, yeah. Who knows what they're up to. Right. But on the other hand, it's like, literally, it's, it's the barber. It's you know, yeah, it's yeah. the guy who runs the bank or yeah. whatever. Like, it's, it's the normal people. Right, right, right. Chances are they're not summoning the devil in the basement. They're not, like, um, yeah. pulling the strings to yeah. make the people in the Middle East fight each other or whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, right. they, they, they have this weird sort of club they're in. Mm-hmm. And the penitentes, for the most part, mm-hmm. seem pretty harmless to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you want to whip yourself, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> crap. You know, dig up your grandpa, stick his yeah. head on a on your altar. Yeah, yeah I have whatever. friends that hang themselves from hooks from trees and, and nightclubs and stuff, oh and get God, a rush from yeah. it. I mean, it's like, you know, there's it, what people do in their own time. I really don't yeah, care. Exactly. You know, um, you know. If we take some of these old stories at face value, then maybe they could become sort of sinister. But honestly, I don't know that we can take them yeah. at face value. Did that guy, Roland C. Price, who uh, did all these movies that were incredibly exploitive and sensationalistic, Mm -hmm. was he telling the truth that the penitentes shot at him in the, you know, when he photographed the thing? Right, right. I don't know. I don't feel like he's a trustworthy voice, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so I totally got it wrong earlier in our discussion that that he got arrested the same day. It was six months Mm. later. Yeah. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these things like yeah. I, I think at least it shows that he uh, maybe was lacking a certain amount of forethought. Oh man, I you just I, I feel so bad for him. I just, I just I feel like Carl Taylor dying, you know, at, at a fairly early age. That's how old sad to me. Do you know? But oh, uh, how old was Carl Taylor? Man, I know this was in there. Um, he was born in 1904. Was that what it said? 1904. So he yeah. would have been like 32. Yeah, yeah, that's 32. About right, yeah. Um, it's pretty young, I gotta say. But man, Modesto Trujillo story—that is sadder to me. I, like, yeah. like to become a murderer at such a young age and have your whole life be in prison after that. Like, that to me is like a prolonged, just sad existence, man. That, that yeah, you know, and, I, and you know, it's like we can we can uh, we're we're in this position of having to project motive mm-hmm. on. Oh, I know. Yeah, we're totally. Right. So we don't know why he did these things. I'm very but I can't come up with a reason that wasn't like. Uh, incredibly like stupid and short-sighted. Yeah, it, could been, like... it could have been really stupid. You know, to me, the most satisfying explanation is that Taylor was abusive or like sexually weird in some yeah, way with him. Yeah. Like because I could see just viscerally wanting to kill that person if like someone had been like violating you in some horrible way. Yeah, and and yeah. then and then also not wanting to say that reason. 
Right. You totally. know, like Especially I... Especially at that time, right? I did it to steal stamps and traveler's checks. <laughs> I mean, that's embarrassing too, but like it, it's yeah. just... You know, I, I just... To me, that is a, a more satisfying explanation and it just... And it adds to like a very sad portrait that I have in my mind of Modesto. Um, but it's like it, these people who are lost to us, you know? Yeah. We can't, we, yeah. Can't, uh, we can't find out more about Modesto Trujillo, really. A little bit here and there, you know? You can gather... I've met a couple people that met him yeah. and, and interviewed them and, and talked to them. And it was, but you can never have just, a sit-down, face-to-face chat with them. No, you know, he's gone from us, yeah. Or Carl Taylor. Yeah. You know, like, they're, they've been dead. Right. Well, Carl Taylor's been dead 70, 80 years oh, now. I know, it's crazy. I, I don't know how long about us. He, ha- he has a brother that I've tracked down. Carl Taylor? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it's him in another state, I forget which. Yeah. And uh, and I called him, and I just got, the guy swore at me and hung up, and that was it. But that's how a lot of these things end. Good times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't know that it was him for sure, Lon, Lon mm-hmm. Taylor. Um, but, um, you know, it's it's... Yeah, the, you know, and people place different values on this stuff too. I've I've interviewed a number of like old time uh, Hispanic locals up in the mountains who are just like, why don't you just let stuff get forgotten? You know, yeah, yeah. that's a different value than I have. Personally, I'm like, write it all down, chronicle it, talk about it. But maybe that's a why don't we want to let things get forgotten? Because I'm the, I'm the same way. I don't want to. Forget yeah, things, maybe know? it's for me. It's like trouble a, in my life. Yeah, it's like an insecurity. I think I just I want <laughs> I want to be remembered. I I want to remember these other things. I also too. feel like. You know, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm such a a mess of conflicted feelings oh, and sure, things yeah. in myself yeah. that yeah. I I want to I want to see other people who have yeah. felt that way in their life too you know. Uh, uh, we pause that just for a second. Sure. What's wrong? Hey, no problem. We can right. uh, introduce All right. special I'm, guest Willow. Yeah, I'm holding a young child who just woke up. Um, but I, I feel like, in a way, I feel like I, I, I feel so much conflict and turmoil in myself that I want to see it in people who've come before. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I sort of want to honor it. Yeah. I don't want to forget yeah. it. I, I want to think that even the parts of themselves they didn't like oh, <laughs> man. mattered. I love it. I feel so <laughs> connected to the past when I see those moments. You know... One of my favorite uh, books of poetry ever is Mary Barnard's translation of Sappho. And that's, Sappho lived over 2,000 years ago in, yeah. on an island off the coast of Greece. And I read those poems and I'm like, oh my God, time is not real. Right. And these people back then were just like us. They just had different things that they, they danced around a stone altar instead right. of at a oh club. You know, it's like, it's. You know, they wore dill leaves in their hair and they like, they talk about love and they talk about all the same things that we care about. Like we, we, right, we have so right. much in common with the past and I just like, I, I feel like ultimately all these, these efforts to understand these stories from the past are, are efforts of self-exploration too, yeah, you know, exactly. we're just like, God, man, what's it mean to like be a messy human being and like <laughs> try to sort out your own feelings and your own motives and your own life and all that, you know, um, and that's what so much of the story is about. Like the yeah. penitentes trying to like yeah. find their own way through the the wilderness of New Mexico when they've been abandoned by right. the the thing that like literally gave their life meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, Carl Taylor drawn constantly to these places mm-hmm. on the fringe of his mm-hmm. culture, trying to like 
find some meaning there. Right, right. Modesto Trujillo, who knows what Modesto yeah. Trujillo was after, but you feel like he was after something, you know? It could have been so simple, man. It could have been just robbery, mm. but man, it could have been complicated too. It just, you know, Yeah. and I, t- I tend to lean that way because I feel like people are complicated. I don't, have you ever done anything out of a simple motivation? Maybe eat something, uh, you know, like, yeah. you know, I want to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. but it, I mean, it's just, it's, Ah, I I wonder, man. I just wonder what that story is so much. I would love to talk to Modesto's family sometime and find out. Like, I just... Yeah. You know, I mean, God, what a sad story, man. I I just don't feel like... I think it's so wrong to try teenagers as adults. I just think, you know, like... Although it's interesting to me that he was given 99 years, but then was released. Yeah. You know? Apparently he was a good... He was a good... 11 years later? Yeah. There's also... There are also accounts of him, like, making really good friends with a woman that worked at the prison. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, kind of interesting. do Do you know when he died? Like... Um, I, so we're getting into really anecdotal stuff now, if I I tell you this. Um, I heard that he married and moved to Denver and that he died, he died in his eighties. But you know, that, that makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that's true. At the very least, I hope that's true. He was able to find someone. None of that's in the piece I wrote because I couldn't verify any of that. Like I heard that from locals and, and, uh, yeah, you know, I tried looking him up in Denver phone books. I tried all kinds of stuff just trying to, but you know, maybe someone will hear this and get, get back. To, I would love. I I would love to know more about him and about and about uh, the story. You know, I just, you know, God, what a what a mystery. And and it's to me, it's special because you can go up to the mountains and walk around those areas. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, we were kind of like on private property when we were doing it, right? But, but like, it's there. Mike and I went last weekend. We saw Carl Taylor's cabin. Yeah. Walked over to Modesto Trujillo's right, place, right, and then we walked up to where the Murado was, yep, yep. and on it was all within it's so a thousand close. yards, so close, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, the Murado's rubble now. There's nothing, there's nothing there. there, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Modesto Trujillo's house and uh, Carl Taylor's house were still standing. Yeah. And it's interesting with the rubble that the Murado is in such bad shape. It's like kind of like it was violently torn down. A I know. Bit. I felt like that. Like, yeah. Scraped off the earth, you know. It's, it's owned by the woman that earns Burger Boy, Burger Boy at that oh, really? restaurant up there. Yeah, yeah. Because I was out there once, and she caught me trespassing. Um, <laughs> like, I wonder what her uh, yeah. motives were for for tearing it down. I don't know if she like... did. It could have been torn down fifty years ago. Who knows? But yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. But it does seem like. Well, there's a building right back behind it that wasn't torn down. I think that was like Modesto's grandfather's house. That's still uh, up there. It's just rotting away into the weeds. Yeah. Uh, God, it's so it's it, you know, to me like everything is ultimately a mystery because ultimately you get down to the mystery of existence. You know, like yeah, it just, it's sure. just so strange to stand next to an old building and contemplate everything that's happened there before. You know, <laughs> to stand out in the desert and just like get a sense of the the sheer like vast time that's just elapsed there. You know, right, it's, right. it's it's kind of amazing. You know, we should we could fade in with this discussion of that cabin to next week's topic. You, you want to do that? What, what's next Are week's we topic, to? do you think? Or next well, episode's topic? Do we talk about the preppers thing? Oh, yeah, the preppers yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Carl Taylor's cabin, I've been in there a few times. Uh, we, we couldn't go in it this last time except for the screened-in porch, which was right. unlocked. Um, and, uh, but I've been in there uh, a few times over the years because the guy that used to live there was kind of a hoarder. I mean, he was a nice guy, but, like, that place was full of boxes. You know, you could maybe even call him a prepper. I mean, he was just... He just just had everything you would need and 
to the point that it made the the building unusable. I was right. like, oh, I really want to take a picture by the fireplace where one of the third bullet hit hit the fireplace. Oh, you can't. There's like a hundred boxes in between uh, between yes. here. He literally had like cubicle walls erected in there to like so he could have a sleeping area. The do, you bo- know, do you know why he? Uh... The boxes were just crowding him out. I don't know. It's really strange, but but um, you know, he was prepared for. What, for doomsday. Whatever happened, I guess. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Like, but um, you know, yeah. I think he should be our 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 lead our lead the into one? the next week, which is yeah, well, next week we're gonna yeah. or uh, next episode we're yeah. gonna do uh, the end of the world yeah. in New Mexico, basically. Okay. And uh, people okay. who are prepared for it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I went over to a a preppers expo. Oh wow! Talked to some people who are yeah. ready to uh, to murder their fellow humans. Um, after the uh, after the government collapsed, like you have to do, you know. <laughs> apparently that's yeah, what he yeah. told me. Um, but New Mexico's long been a, a home to people who are ready for the end oh, of the man. world. You yeah. know, like there's a uh, all sorts of different groups that are hunkering down, including mm-hmm. the government. We've got some uh, some deep places out oh, yeah. here ready for uh, people to survive nuclear attack. Hollow mountains. Hollow mountains. Carlsbad Caverns oh, has man. a uh, nuclear bunker yeah. in it. Ooh, what about the Scientology base in Tremontino? Uh, we can talk about, about that, that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Those, yeah. those people are ready for not just the end of the world, but the end of their lives. Oh, yeah. And coming back after they're reincarnated yeah. Yeah. to find the base. So, yeah. Won't we all look foolish when that happens? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, it's man. true, yeah. yeah. Know, if, if they come well, back... They were um, right. <laughs> they're going to be one of a bunch of dumbasses <laughs> on this planet. <laughs> Oh man, that's funny. Yeah, that's gonna be a good one. That's gonna be good. I can't wait to hear about your time at the Preppers Expo. All right. All right. So shall we? Uh, we close up po- here. Yeah, we pause it for a second. Sure. So I was, I was inspired to stick, put some chords to Modesto Trujillo's song. Oh, nice. What 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 did he say in the song? My name is Modesto Trujillo. Oh no! If you want to know who I am, just ask the Want to know who I am Just ask the jailer My name is Modesto Trujillo I've just come from San Antonio A little bird flew down And rested on my shoulder And sang these words to me Life you once had is over If you want to know who I am Just ask the jailer My name is Modesto Trujillo I've just come from San Antonio I hear the train at night Calling out for me Green Hills of California If you want to know who I am Just ask the jailer My name is Modesto Trujillo I've just come from San Antonio See, that makes me like Modesto even more. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about that guy, man. Singing, like, 
I mean, it's it's horrible what he did. I wish he hadn't killed Carl Taylor. Yeah, it's like, you know, shouldn't like, have murdered that guy. No. <laughs> Thanks. That's so good. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Oh, man. Yeah, I. I uh, what to say about this story, man? I mean, it, it, maybe it's silly to be sad about a murder that happened so long ago. Or, no, why would it be sad to you know, be, like, be sad about a murder? Like, what's wrong like, with that, you know? Yeah, I guess. But, you know, it's so weird. You know, you read about, like, Roman wars or something forever ago. Every person literally in them forgotten, yeah, you know? Yeah, and, and, and But it's like, I don't, maybe that's, I don't know. Yeah, it's... How do you, how do you not be? How do you, have you ever met a totally dispassionate historian? If you think about it's it like, enough... Yeah, it should make you sad. Yeah, that's it's true. Yeah, pretty much anyone's life, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Maybe it's a survival instinct not to think yeah. about it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe. Oh man, crazy. You know, it, man, that might be an interesting book, right? Like a dual biography of uh, Taylor. And yeah. 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 They disrobe the Christ and tie him on the cross as they lift it up. The living burden makes no sign. The raw hide and leather thongs with which the crucified is bound are drawn so tight that the circulation is almost stopped. In the event of the Christo dying, his shoes will be removed and placed underneath his doorstep. His family asks no questions. They know that somewhere in the heart of the hills, he is buried in a secret unmarked grave. And they rejoice. For what greater glory than for a man to die as his savior died. Wake up, America. Here in our own country, we can see the very heart of Africa pounding against the ribs of the Rockies.